Welcome to another episode of On The Line. I'm Joe Mullings, live from London, and I have a friend and associate in, I guess we'd call this studio, it's a hotel, suite, um, Adam Gordon. Adam, would you introduce yourself and share with our audience your, uh, your mission? Yes, certainly. So uh, I'm Adam Gordon. I'm co-founder and CEO at Candidate ID. Candidate ID is talent pipeline software. And I guess our mission is to uh, make, uh, to, it's, it's to, give, to give every employer the opportunity to create genuine talent pipelines. And I've got a specific definition for a talent pipeline, which is it only exists when you know who's cold, who's warm, and who is hire ready. And if you don't know that, you don't have a talent pipeline. Cool. And so I promise you I will not make this a commercial for Candidate ID. What I will do, though, is explain to you why I found the psychology of what Adam's platform does is so critically important for the hiring process, whether you're a client or a company uh, or an individual, or you'll hear me use the word candidate, which is outside my language usually today. But uh, we'll talk about that because when I first saw the product um, and the concept, it just made total sense. And so for the listeners who are in process with an organization or clients who listen who are looking to make a hire, uh, give, a, give a, just a, a general overview, Adam, of what the product does and how it does it without getting too techy. That's cool. And we're still live, and Adam's got a call. Wait, let's do the call live. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you who it was. It was it was the it was the person who sends me every quarter a box of clothes so that I don't have to go to a shop. <laughs> do you want do you want to advertise hashtag Susie's clothes shop? <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you what. It's called the Chapper, and actually, I liked it so much. I took part in their crowdfunding. Yeah, C H A P A R. And I took part in their crowdfunding, and I own about one share or something in the chopper. <laughs> Let's make sure we hashtag that for new listeners. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. tell me about the platform. Yeah, so the, I mean, the key thing about Candidate ID is uh, it, it's all about uh, giving employers the opportunity to serve, and agencies as well. It's not just for employers. Anybody that wants to create a talent pipeline, it gives them the opportunity to distribute content in a way that's really personalized. So in terms of a candidate experience, it's optimum. It understands that Joe likes content through uh, email in a video format about skills, whereas Adam likes content through text message in an infographic format about industry insights. So you know, what you're trying to do is get people to obviously apply for an opportunity at some point but if you've got 500 potential candidates, those 500 people might want entirely different journeys to get there. They'll all get there at different times, and they'll, they'll go through completely different routes. My colleague Scott calls it the flight of the bumblebee. A journey is totally unpredictable. The candidate's journey is totally unpredictable. So what you need to be able to do is give them what they want based on their behavior. So we're using the word candidate. So I want to be really careful on that today. And we'll use it in the sense of whether you're a candidate in process or a headhunter who uses the word candidate, which is totally cool for today's conversation. But when is a candidate a candidate? You and I were chatting about that in the, I'm in London, in the lift. And um, 
there are people who are um, self-anointed candidates when they have no right calling themselves a candidate. Yeah, so my, I mean, I, I understand your point around, around this and uh, it, it, I completely understand it. My take on this is everybody is a candidate until they retire. Okay. Even if they own their own company, even if they're already the CEO, there is another job that somebody might want to consider them a candidate for. So it's not about whether the individual, as you call them, uh, thinks of themselves as a candidate. It's about whether a potential employer thinks of themselves as a candidate. And my um, analogy in this is I could think of myself as a candidate to be prime minister, but the electorate probably doesn't think of me as a candidate and there's no political party that I'm aligned closely enough to consider me as a candidate so I'm not a, I'm not a candidate but if a political party decided you know they they cherry picked me and said you could be our new leader and you could be the leader of this country then as far as they're concerned I'm a candidate right so th that's what I want to latch on to so people get pissed all the time in the process they're like you know I sent my resume in and I got ghosted. I'm like, hold on a second. Did they reach out to you, meaning the company, and did they engage with you? Well, no, but they never did. I said, okay, well, that's in itself not a good thing, but can I see the job you applied for? And, you know, respectfully, the person was working at a dry cleaner and they applied for a surgeon's job. Now, I'm being a little sublime, but you're not a candidate at that point, and you can't get pissed at the system. But you can get pissed at the system when you do apply, the organization reaches out, and says, hey, we're interested, please send us an updated resume, or can we do a phone call, or can we bring you in, right? And so, do you agree, disagree with that? Thoughts on that? I, I do absolutely agree with that, and the, the description I give is the, the plumber who applied to be an economist, and the economist who applied to be a plumber. You know, it doesn't work. However, um, I, I, I think that people deserve a response, and there's an ethical thing in here which most companies do not adhere to. And one of the problems with recruitment is that it's considered a transaction and it's a one-time event, mm -hmm. and people don't think about what happens before and after that transaction. So they don't give a shit about mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, whether that candidate is irritated or upset that they haven't got a response, and they don't consider the fact that that person is going to tell, maybe, they're certainly going to tell their family, they might tell 10 of their friends as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, even if the plumber did apply for the economist's job or vice versa, I still think they deserve a response. Actually, even if it is a technology-driven response, which is, sorry, you're not, you know, the AI has actually picked up that that person's resume does not match the job, sorry, you're not suitable. At least they then know they don't expect, they can't expect a phone call. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I just, I think there's a response. I guess my point is there's a responsibility to the individual who's like, I'm going to apply for this. And, and I get it, and, and I want to get into that. Nobody would have hired you as a software development guy maybe no. 10 years ago. No. Right? But here you are today, yeah. right? Um, but you're an exception. I, I, have, I have challenges because I'm pro-individual and neutral at best on companies. Companies have a much greater responsibility to the market than the individual does to the company. So I just want that to be clear. However, I think there's gotta be a management of expectations when you apply for something that's not even close. Take it on the chin, 
be a big boy, be a big girl, and walk away. But don't get pissed and spew poison through the market if you applied for something and didn't hear back. Now, if they engage with you, that's a different situation. I, I, of course, absolutely. If they and that, hap- but that happens all the time as well. People do, res- you know, approach ca- potential candidates and talk to them, try to talk to them about opportunities that then they don't respond on. That's absolutely right. One thing is, um, I mean, I'm, I, we might overestimate your your points valid. There's a responsibility on the individual to apply for things that is relevant for them and they're, they're potentially suitable for. However, we're maybe overestimating humans because if somebody, if the economist does apply for the plumber's job without any plumbing experience, that person probably would still expect a response. There's a bit of delusion maybe in there and maybe a lot of us are deluded. But the other thing, guys in particular, and this is proven, guys apply for jobs that they are not qualified for far, far more than than women do. And I can't remember the statistics, but it's 10 times more men will apply for a job that they're not qualified for than women oh, will. I think that goes beyond a job, Adam. I think men are just hallucinogenic on a much higher level than women are. <laughs> I mean, we think we can do anything, right? And, and, and we think we're immune to everything. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, the female is just much more much more plugged in than we are. So uh, generally that's, not smarter. A, that's not a big aha moment. We were just having that conversation. Walter, my head of marketing, who's on the other side of the camera there, and he was talking about a business he had and how his wife kept them out of the poor house. I'm like, you know, they just sit there and look at us as children. And they're like, poor thing. You just, you just don't know. They let us get our way, right, until it's something that's really important. And then they drop the hammer, and they should, right, because that's what keeps us from absolutely exploding. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that that's probably good. I think I think men and women are going to even out in a couple of generations' time. And I think one of the reasons that this uh, situation exists is because people are completely influenced by their parents. And I believe that people are 99% of how an adult is and what they look at the world and that kind of thing is, is based on their upbringing, based on their parents. And, of course, people in their... Um, maybe 30s, but certainly 40s and 50s. I mean, they, they, their, their mother probably didn't work in the UK or in the USA. It was probably their father who worked. So men have got uh, an, un- an unfortunate need to feel like they need to go and provide and they need to succeed. And that's why they maybe take a step further than they should and maybe women don't feel the need to uh, I think it's to just take that women, extra step. I think it's because women are just more considerate than men, quite honestly. We're, we're, I, it probably is. No, no, I mean, is. really, remote control, beer, and couch. And, right, <laughs> that's how complicated we are. And women are just deeper thinkers and, 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 and more empathetic and, and more considerate in general than men are. So that's it. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but uh, and for all all you, they're going to send me hate mail. I, none of that was meant to be the wrong way, but my wife always tells me I tend to deliver things in a chauvinistic way. Yeah, I, I've just I've realized <laughs> that what I just said might come across as chauvinistic as well. I'm not at all chauvinistic. Um, so, <clears throat> in the hiring process, here's what's interesting, and you know, I just had this discussion before we went on air. It's really it's 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 an antiquated system. We, we we've got technology right now that is at its greatest point ever, right, in, in, in the history of the world, 
uh, and it's leaked into the recruiting business. And, yeah. and you and I, online, on LinkedIn, all these job boards or whatever these boards are that some of these knucklehead recruiters go on and make these claims, um, we see that a lot of these people are just incompetent at what they do. And now what they're doing is they're amplifying that incompetence with software. Uh, and then there are some people who are solid at what they do and the right tool in the right hand can change the business. Any opinions or thoughts on the next few years relative to software meeting, talent acquisition meeting? And let's talk at the agency level first because I'm selfish there. Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we've got a... We, we don't have... Our, our industry does not have the best reputation and I believe that a complete you know, slight tangent would be around the reason for that, I believe, is because of the way that contingency recruitment works. But uh, that's a separate subject. The, the reason, so what's going to happen is there's, there's no barriers to entry in recruitment. There's no professional qualifications you need to take. All you need is access to the Internet and a phone, basically, and, and you can set yourself up as a recruitment agency. Now, um, what I'm absolutely confident is going to happen is that those individuals who are not very good are going to disappear from our industry. And those individuals who are really good are going to excel and they're going to do better and better. So there's going to be a, like, a huge number of people and businesses that are going to get cut adrift and they're effectively going to have, going to, have to stop trading. Mm. And I would tend to agree with that. The, the challenge here is there's a lot of people who create a lot of white noise in recruiting who sit at a kitchen table, and, and that's going out to recruiting animals, sit at a kitchen table and, and do a decent job, and then there's those who don't. Um, and they'll never spend the money on the, on the software. And I think you're right. I think if they don't stay up to speed on software, and software doesn't replace recruiting skills. It just, again, amplifies them. It makes you better or makes you worse. Um, the thing that I've noticed from our side with technology and my firm is, and we, we were chatting about your platform in particular, um, when you look at a platform that comes into the office and it has to do with the ability to parse out the individual, give them more bespoke experience, and reach them, touch them, whether it's on text, whether it's on email, whether it's on the phone, whatever the, whatever the mode of sort of engagement is, you have to stop thinking like a classic recruiter you have to stop saying, let me get on the phone and pitch something to somebody. And we are bringing in, and I think you're gonna see more of the search business bring in people who have nothing to do with the telephone. But they're reaching out and messaging and engaging and providing an unbelievable candidate experience from start to finish. And we talked about this, start to finish infers a straight line. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the line and the end of the line. And so visually, let's take that and just bend that around and make it a circle. And I think you're going to have an ongoing relationship with the market via software in a bespoke fashion by giving valuable content that will be the bifurcation of talent acquisition. There'll be those who do transaction and have a start and a finish as a straight line. And then there'll be those who create an ongoing experience in the hiring process for their entire life or the career, the life of their career. That's where I think software goes very, very quickly. And the people who leverage that and design their businesses, their search businesses around that, i.e. also the corporate talent acquisition effort around that, making an experience, are the people who are going to dominate in the next two or three years. 
So I completely agree with that. Um, I think that those who do not adopt a um, smarter, more community kind of uh, based approach are going to have to rely on luck more and more. And relying on luck is not a great way of uh, building a business. In terms of that start and finish aspect to recruitment, and that this is, most of us are guilty of thinking about recruitment as there is a start, which is the job gets signed off, there's a finish, which is the person starts in the job. And I believe that we are rejecting full-time permanent employment more than we ever were the days of working for my father worked for i think three organizations during his career in what, 40 years and i don't think that very many of us are going to be doing that in the future um i think that we need to be considering retaining our relationships with individuals that we might hire multiple times as much as we consider um a focus on retaining the people that are actually working for our organizations today. So I don't think there's a start and a finish. I think it's an ongoing nurture process, whether the person's working in your organization today or they're gonna be working in your organization next week or next year or in three years. I think it's an ongoing process and it doesn't stop now. And the straight line function um, infers, and this is the only business I've ever seen at scale that does this, is does not nurture the sales leads it gets. And, and, and let's just, let's boil headhunting down to what it is. You get a job order opening, you go out into the market, you bust your horns and you find, let's just make it 15 really good people. Let's say you're a decent headhunter that are on mark, not, not garbage, right? 15 really good people. Out of those 15, five get a TI, a telephone interview, three get in face to face. One gets the offer, one gets the acceptance, right? Same person. Now the person who got the offer, super happy. You know, party, everybody's great, awesome. What about the people that were good enough for you to put on your plan, were good enough for you to call, were good enough for you to send in, right? So we're going down the funnel here. We're good enough for the client to get on the phone. Now what you've done is you've just thrown them out in the trash. The relationship you literally threw out in the trash. You spent all that time, all that effort, all that money, and I'm not just talking as a headhunter, I'm also talking about a company. Why would you not, like every other sales organization in the world, continue to nurture that lead so you can convert it at a later date and convert it not for a job offer, but for a conversion back into a process. So it's the people who, it's the people who didn't quite get the job, but they maybe would have done, uh, or they, could, they were good enough to get the job. But it's also the people who turned the job down this time. It's the people who got halfway through the process and then didn't complete the process. It's the people who, really important, it's the people who reviewed the job description but didn't apply at this point. So that's one of the big things that we're looking at is who are the people that looked at the job description but didn't apply Maybe at this point? Maybe they needed more data. Maybe something came up, right? And poof, it's gone. They normally need more data. Right. So four out of five people who look at a job description do not apply for a job. And we know this from the data from our customers. Mm -hmm. If you know who those four people are, and you can reach out to those people and find out 
you know, if they would be interested in having a conversation about it, they normally are interested in having a conversation about it, and they normally didn't apply because they were missing one piece of information, like how do I get to the office, or what's the you know what's the precise package, or something like that. Or somebody walked into their office and saw them on the screen, and quickly they had. Switch screen because they didn't want to know that okay. we were looking for a could, job, right? And could, then they didn't get re-engaged back into the process. Could could be that. Could be the the, right. the, the, the sport way. the sports game they're watching sure. suddenly you know sure. got more interesting, or there could be sure. some some you know. There's all sorts of reasons. Bell scores a goal. Did you see that goal? Bell scored. It was incredible <laughs> that that goal. Yeah, I mean he scored a lot of great goals, but that, that goal. That, yeah, yeah. I mean right here. So so the the process itself, the recruiting process, the talent acquisition process in corporate America in search firms is still being run the same way it always was years ago. As it is in the UK. I, I mean, I, I genuinely, so I, I, was a, I was recruiting between 1999 and 2002, so just three years. Um, but the person who's doing my old job in the agency I used to work for will not be doing it much different to the way I was doing it today. Uh, then. Yeah. The only difference will be that they were they were probably finding people on LinkedIn, whereas I was turning up at people's leaving dues and asking if anybody else is interested in moving and stuff like that. So they're probably doing it in a lazier way than the way I was I was doing it back then. That's not going to create great behaviors. Yeah. I, I want to jump into the, the candidate journey and, and how you think that's changed over the last couple of years. Yeah, so um, when, I, when I started in recruitment in 1999, candidates could get very limited information about an opportunity or even about an employer and what it's like to work there. So they had to do their journey hand in hand with a recruiter, with a human. Now, however, they have an abundance of information online and they can find out what the coffee tastes like if they work for L'Oreal. They can find out what, the, what their manager's inside leg measurement is. They can find out almost everything they need to know. Wait, in, inside leg measurement? Well, they could, they, possibly. It depends on what kind of uh, resources they're using online. Um, but, you know, th there's, it's exactly the same way that, we, you know, this is not just to do with recruitment either. This is um, every high consideration kind of decision that people make. They're doing a lot of it online now. And even though we're social uh, creatures, we actually don't want to talk to somebody that's going to sell us something. So we don't go into all the car dealerships. We look up the specifications and the performance and the reviews online. And then we might get it down to the three that we're going to go and test drive. In the past, there might have been six that we test drove. Same with holidays. We don't go into five travel agencies and ask them what kind of deals they've got and where they recommend. We go and look at what other people have enjoyed. And we go and look at the prices and do comparisons and things like that online. So we, we, don't, we, we could buy a holiday. We could spend... $5,000 on a holiday that we haven't actually, you know, we haven't even spoken to a human about. So um, it's exactly the same way that candidates don't really want to talk to humans until they've decided, yes, that's somewhere that uh, I want to work. They've looked at the company's values and its mission and it is in line with theirs. So, so how we need to adapt is we need to make sure that what they're reviewing is what we want them to review so we want to make sure that we're giving, actively giving them content way before they're ready for talking about an opportunity. So, you know, we, we need to adapt by being much, much savvier about how we use the internet, content, social media. So I hear you on that. And, and, and that is if you view 
talent acquisition through the old lens. I think new talent acquisition and the way we've been driving our firm, and I don't want this an advertisement, it's people will push away if they feel like they're being transacted. Absolutely will. Having said that, if you're sitting around a cocktail party with a dozen people, and one of those people just came back from Alaska, another one came back from Romania, another one came back from Japan, and one came from Africa. And they weren't selling you, but they were informing you. And they were telling you about their experience. I think people want that more than reading that online. So when you can realize that if you become a partner and you become a storyteller and you become somebody who gives information without looking for anything in exchange and you really live like that, like truly live like that, don't bullshit it, that is when they won't go online and look for it. They may go online to look for additional data, but it's no longer the catalyst. They then figure out, I'm going to Alaska because Susie and Bob went, and yeah, I'm gonna go on American Airlines instead of Delta, maybe, because my miles are there. But I think if the business adopts that mindset of not being a transaction, but being that circular sort of relationship over time, and tells stories, and explains, and facilitates, and informs, about not just a company. How about informing people about the market? I'm not going to tell you what hotel to stay at in Alaska, but I'm going to tell you about the Alaska experience. And here's the different levels of lodging. That's where real talent acquisition is going to occur, whether you're a headhunter, whether you're a corporation. And so I think the tools and the technology that will help that are those that, because if you're a sales guy and you're sending out content to people, they're going to just unsubscribe or they're gonna outright just stop following you. They're gonna be like, dude, you're sending me garbage and you're selling me. But if what you're doing is empowering me and teaching me and getting me to think, and so that's what's really careful about, I've learned over the last three years, is if you're developing content and it even smells like you're selling, you're gonna get shut down. So you, you, you don't, I don't believe you sell anything any, I don't believe you should sell anything at any point. And I break up the candidate journey into four stages. So there's an awareness stage, which is they know that you are an employer and they might be interested in talking to you in the future. Mm-hmm. At that stage, you don't sell them what it's like to work there. You give them information that's going to help them with their career. That's what I think you do. Whether you're a headhunter or you're a your, your internal talent acquisition. You give them information that's gonna be useful for their career, that generates goodwill, and that makes them much more likely to come through the journey with you when they are looking for an opportunity. Then there's the education phase that somebody goes into, which is normally when they're not ready to talk about jobs, but they're kind of window shopping, and they wanna find out what's the difference between Johnson & Johnson and GSK, they'll go onto your career site or they'll uh, go on to find out your social media. They'll go and look at your CEO's interview with Bloomberg. And they want to kind of just find out which of these companies fits with my purpose and my mission. And then there's the consideration phase, which is they're far deeper in and they're ready to start applying. That's, I think, the point where humans add the most value, uh, one-to-one, one-to-one value. Um, and that's when 
Bob, that's when talking to Bob about really what did you do in Alaska and how did it, how did you enjoy it, and which hotel did you stay in? That's the point where they want that kind of information. So. I think 80% of people, according to LinkedIn, 80% of people are not in the market for an opportunity today. And so they definitely don't want to don't don't want your employer brand and they definitely don't want to see your job descriptions. So you've got to but you've got to create ways of generating goodwill with those individuals. And that is most people. I think that's probably going to change because I think we're moving towards a world where people are in the market most of the time as more people have got different ways that they can earn a living so they can work for themselves more readily than they ever could before. They can contract more readily than they could before. They can choose who they want to work for. They can choose the contracts they want to take based on what the work involves. And, you know, we can we can do a lot more of that than we used to. And so uh, I think more people will be in the market more than, than, than they are today. But um, the sort of retention of relationship with people and the ability to talk to people about things that is not jobs is a skill that recruiters are going to have to get better and better at. Yeah, and, and here's something that doesn't get spoken about enough, and, and I don't know if it just doesn't get recognized or it sounds elitist. You really need to view on the talent acquisition side, if you're the employer in particular, and let's just say the headhunter as well, there's a couple different sectors that need to be addressed in hiring. There's the mass hiring, where I need 400 people over the next two years for my manufacturing facility. Yeah. That is a different process than hiring at the other end of the spectrum that most headhunters should recognize that you are getting brought on board as a partner with a client to find the force multiplier. Just in the sheer numbers, the force multipliers, the A candidate, like the true A candidate, who is the franchise player that makes or breaks organizations. Those individuals are not on the marketplace answering ads. And I don't care how well your ad is made, I don't care how slick your video is, I don't care how amazing your CEO is, that relationship needs to be brokered through a middleman, a really good headhunter. And so I agree with you. I think you have to look at tech and then you have to triage it based upon, are you going after the masses? Are you going after that real true A player, the force multiplier, or the group in between? And the group in between are, maybe I look, maybe I won't look. The masses are, shit, I need a job. My company's going out of business. You know, I need that, that, that lower tier job. And, and nobody's better or worse but they are three distinctly different processes and you need to manage them appropriately. And people right now, corporations are slapping the mass hiring, trying to attract the force multiplier. And that's where they're getting screwed and frustrated. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and we're, we're thinking along the same lines here. So I, it, to me, the only reason that I split these three up is because of the candidate decision and the candidate journey is different in the three areas. So I split it up according to, I call it volume, then qualified volume, and then exec. So the force multipliers. So a human interaction at the exec level is fundamental and people are rarely in the market looking for opportunities. So you have to go and make an intervention. 
let, let's oh, hold <clears> that thought there. They're always in the market. You just haven't gotten their attention yet with the right opportunity. I can tell you in our area of expertise that those people are always looking and never looking. Yeah, so this goes back to what we, we were talking about this earlier. And, and this, my, my, def, my, my feeling is everybody is a candidate until they retire. And so that fits in with what you've just said, which is they are always looking. And I, I completely agree with that. They will be, unless they have maybe just been given a massive L-tip or some sort of retention bonus that's based on, you know. It's an outlier. Sure. There is a, yeah, and then banking, that happens quite a lot. But uh, in most industries, it doesn't. So the, the, the journey, the people who, the volume area, so people talk about treat candidates like consumers. That only really applies in the volume area where somebody would decide to go from one call center to a different call center because they'll get a pound an hour more mm -hmm. in the other call center. Mm -hmm. That is the difference between shall I choose Dr. Pepper or Lilt? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very, very quick decision. The, the area that I'm really interested in is this middle area, which is what I call qualified volume, mm -hmm. where there are more jobs than there are people that can do the job. You have to roll out the red carpet. You have to try really hard to get them to move. Most of them are not in the market. So things like salespeople um, are often in here, like technical salespeople in particular. Um, things like accountants, lawyers, software engineers. And there's a, every single company has got four, five, six different areas where they have got evergreen hiring requirements in that area. In banking, it's risk and it's digital. In pharmaceutical, it's things like clinical project managers and salespeople and marketing people. And that's an area that I'm really focused on because it's one that you can automate a lot of that talent pipeline building process. But when the human, the human recruiter knows who's starting to warm up and they know who's looking at job descriptions but not applying, and they can make that intervention, at that point, that's where tech is really serving the serving that market. And, and we have to be careful on tech because uh, still at the end of the day, tech is nothing more than a catalyst to the engagement of a human to a human. I, I completely agree with that. How, too, many, too, too many people looking for autopilot and an answer. Yeah, I, no, I, I completely agree with that. However, what I would say is that candidates do not, or potential candidates do not want to talk to a human until much later in the process compared to 20 years ago. So the human interaction or intervention, you know, is, is at a later stage. And That's tech an can do a lot of heavy relationship though. That's an inverse relationship. The lower level don't want to talk to anybody. The higher level force multiplier immediately wants to talk to a human being. I, I no, I completely agree. Right. So we have yeah. to make sure what we triage when we're looking at the triage of talent. Yeah for our listeners especially who might not be in, tuned in as much, or you are a headhunter and you just didn't realize it until you and I just mentioned that, there are three different buckets of talent acquisition behaviors. And that force multiplier wants a bespoke, hold my hand, get me on with the decision maker immediately. So the force multiplier, force multiplier recruitment, this is like what, 2% of the entire kind of recruitment market because it's a tiny number of people. So there's not very many people in exec search. So your world is quite a niche aspect of recruitment and it's very much a consultancy kind of aspect of recruitment. The world, 
beneath that sounds like I'm being rude or, or, about about the world beneath that, but it, it is a completely different kind of approach. And human involvement with candidates is now at a much later stage than it used to be. I would agree. So would agree. technology needs to do a lot of heavy lifting. And this is the reason why most organizations have failed to create talent pipelines, genuine talent pipelines, because they can't, humans do not have the time to pick up the phone to all of those tax consultants that are on their database every month and find out how they're getting on and find out if they're still enjoying their job and what their career aspirations are. At the exact level, you can do that because you don't necessarily have a thousand, you know, thousands and thousands of people in your yeah. talent pool. Yeah, fair enough. And, and what I get concerned with, though, is the objectification of the human being because at scale, um, it, it loses that one-on-one -on -one situation. And, and we, we chatted about that earlier and we used, again, I used, there's a great book out there called On Killing and it talks about taking a life and the difference between how difficult it is to viscerally take a life with a knife in your hand looking at somebody eye to eye versus in a plane and carpet bombing hundreds of people and you know incinerating them, which would you choose to do if you had to choose? And I think 99% of the population carpet bombs without having to look at the individual. And that behavior has been sort of unfortunately transferred to the use of tech because we have objectified the human being now and that has forced us to have the market now get really pissed. And I think there's going to be a whiplash back at the corporate giants where people are no longer going to trust. And there's going to become a tipping point where there's going to be a gut in the market, even if you do amplify tech, but you don't bring it down to the individual. And we'll get there, but I just don't think HR people in general nor CEOs really understand that process. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's interesting. So mo most big organizations say that people are their, you know, most valuable asset, but they don't necessarily act oh, like that in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah. so the thing is, if you're PepsiCo and you're constantly recruiting national account managers and you would interview everybody that works for Mars and everybody that works for Procter & Gamble and everybody that works for Glaxo, um, you, you, you simply don't have a team that's big enough and the agencies that you work with do not have a team that's big enough either to constantly talk to all the people in, in the market and provide that red carpet service. So what do, they, what do they do? They don't provide any service and they treat it as a transaction. What we're trying to do, and I don't want to use this as an advert either, but what we're trying to do at Candidate ID is give companies the opportunity to create those genuine uh, talent pipelines where they are able to keep in contact on a personalized basis, as personalized as possible, with a large number of people at scale without having to do one-to-one -one conversations with people who are mostly not in the market. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and I wanna roll into the end of this here with that. So here's, with all the tech you turn out, with all the great recruiters I turn out, with all the hard work and hustle, the, the world and, and the really good headhunters turns out, I don't think we have a change in talent acquisition until I believe that CEO pay is tied to employer hiring brand. The second that the board and the second that publicly traded organizations or even privately held tie the employer hiring brand to CEO pay, you don't get a change. 
you do not. I will tell you tomorrow, you become a billionaire with candidate ID if employer pay, i.e. CEO pay, was tied to hiring brand. Those MFers, all of a sudden, you'd have their attention and shit would happen. I, I, no, I think you're, I, I've never thought about that before and I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. It's not gonna fly. And one of the big reasons it's not gonna fly is because if you're a, so there's a, there's a big global bank based in London who I know pretty well, who employs 120,000 people and have an objective, a formal objective around reducing 30,000 jobs in their business through automation. You can still drive employer brand. It's, it's listen, you know, the guy who put sh horseshoes on horses got fucked too, <laughs> right? When the automotive came along. It, That's true. We redesigned the <clears throat> workforce. Yeah. And I do believe that the world becomes a tremendously better place when you start to tie CEO pay to a very quant and qualitative sort of examination of the hiring brand for a company. I think it's a terrific idea. So does it, does it, is it, well, we'll put make into it happen with me? Come on, make it let's, happen. Let's, let's try and do it. Right. Absolutely. You do it from your side. I'll do it from my side. But do you know something? It, as we, as, as recruitment becomes more sophisticated, it, it's actually quite natural that that is going to happen because the companies that can't do recruitment are going to fail. So those CEOs are not going to be getting their L tips and their bonuses and whatever. Ah, you saw the light. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I had some time to spend with you on this side of the uh, pond, my friend. And I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you so much for having me on uh, your podcast. And yep. I've really enjoyed this conversation. One of the reasons I've enjoyed it so much is because we agree on about, I think, 80 to 90% of things. And there's a couple of areas where we've got a slightly different perspective, which is fun. Yeah, the friction's important. If we agreed on everything, an echo chamber, one of us is useless. <laughs> That's true. Well, this has been a, another great episode of On the Line. I'm Joe Mullings, and I'd like to thank Adam Gording for joining me in studio today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah.